As profit and purpose converge, businesses are taking more responsibility towards society and the environment. Still, the general perception is that companies mostly have a turbulent relationship with activists and NGOs working for the betterment of society. How can we change this thinking and jointly be a constructive force to bring in real change? We will explore this and more in this episode of Beyond Business with Wärtsilä. Hello everyone, I'm your host Atte Palomäki and today Sini Harkki, program director of Nordic Greenpeace, joins me in the studio to discuss how businesses could work together with activist groups and non-governmental organizations to bring about positive long-term change. Welcome Sini. Thank you. Sini, you have 20 years of experience working on the activist front. How has the corporate NGO dynamic changed over the years? Has it been for the better or for the worse? Well, I think from my very subjective point of view, definitely for the better. And I think it's it's only partially because of corporations and NGOs themselves, but more about the society around us changing. And the, the whole starting point is different. Like when I started as an environmental activist at the end of 1990s, I think one of the first campaigns I worked for was on shell and oil drilling in Nigeria. And and at the time, I remember that talking about the need to end using fossil fuels didn't resonate at all with rest of the society and like majority of people. We were from completely different worlds. And I think now with the complete mainstreaming of the climate concern and also the opportunities that there are and are actually feasible options to phase out fossil fuels. That's changed everything. It's easier for both corporate people and activists to see that where people, uh, there's common ground, we can agree on something. And I think that's the fact that has mostly changed. And then secondly, also that after more and more companies have wanted to actually take an ambitious and like positive role in the change. There's been examples that they can actually make a difference, that they uh, can help real change happen. And of course, that's then also made um, NGOs uh, have more positive expectations of those relationships and probably like vice versa. Continuing on those expectations, there's a recent study of uh, 130 UK-based NGOs and large companies with equal representation from both sides found that 71% of the corporates feel that partnering with non-profits helped address core mission-relevant and purpose-led issues in a way that really creates value for the society. But at the same time, only 33% of the participating NGOs agreed to that. Why do you feel that there's such a wide gap there? Most corporate people or corporations would be quite happy if through talking to NGOs they can identify what the core issues are and then they have their own ways to deal with them. One is maybe to, you know, let's discuss this this in our next strategy session or let's mitigate this risk with our comp strategy. And so they they have their own ways of taking care of these risks um, and issues and NGOs when they enter discussions would usually want to see outcomes and want to see change and hopefully also something quite measurable in the short term. And if that doesn't come out fairly soon after the talks, then they probably would feel disappointed. The same survey, it also found that the majority of the companies and NGOs agree that their partnerships are helping to change the business practices for the better. So then 
why does at least the public perception appear to be that confrontation is at many times the preferred choice over constructive dialogue and especially in emotionally charged issues like the environmental impact? I think there's many reasons behind that and I would argue that the most important is the logic of media and social media. In my 20 years in NGOs, I'm been in numerous constructive talks and um, have done campaigns that try to focus on the positive and solutions and they just don't get visibility in the same way as conflicts and confrontations do. So I think in most cases when uh, when there is confrontation in the media, there's probably been talks and you know whatever different means to approach the situation, possibly for years before that. But uh, it's just not, not interesting enough for the media to to be there. So I think that's one reason. And then probably another one is that um, NGOs quite often are somehow pioneers in a new issue and raise something on the agenda that hasn't been discussed or taken seriously before. And at that point of discussion, like uh, development in the society, it usually happens that it doesn't resonate very much. <laughs> they, their demands are not met. Um, and when you're in, in a position like that, that of course forces you a bit into the more confrontational mm. direction. And I don't think that's only a bad thing because I think activism is like really key component of a resilient democracy. And it means that there needs to be activists that also challenge and uh, present real challenge to the current ways of thinking and doing. Uh, but still, I, I also agree that it's it's definitely too much tilted in that direction. And I, I do take it as a challenge also upon us in the environmental movement to try to make those positive approaches more interesting. To continue on that, over the years, uh, Greenpeace has taken very highly visible action against many, especially oil and energy companies around the world, and you are alluding to yourself being part of some of them. So in those cases, was there an attempt to constructive dialogue prior to the campaign itself, or was the strategy to really start out with a showdown? At least in Greenpeace, it's like our kind of normal practice and code of conduct that we always hoped that there would have been um, like constructive methods used first. So every campaign I've been involved with has always started with approaching the company and starting discussions. Often if we release, let's say, reports that expose something that a company, for example, has done, uh, we usually always uh give them to the company first to read and check the facts. So I think for us at Greenpeace, that that is the way we want to work and to always ensure that there's trust. And even if we say or do things that um, are hard to swallow, then it would still be possible to uh, meet around the negotiation table and like um, that it wouldn't be too personally negatively charged. So mm. that's at least how I try to work. And uh, all the campaigns I've been involved with have worked that way. As you mentioned earlier, times have changed and the, uh, the overall uh, societal sentiment, it has it has transformed quite a lot. And as a consequence, several of the big oil companies, they have also revised their strategies, are aiming to gradually phase out the fossil fuels 
Some examples, BP has stated that it will cut oil and gas production by 40% by 2030. Shell says that production will decline gradually by 1 or 2% annually and be 45% by 2035 compared to 2016. And ExxonMobil has committed to spending $3 billion dollars on a new low-carbon business unit over the next five years. What's your reading of these changing strategies? Well, I think what's very clear is that oil companies finally can also read the writing on the wall. And I think um, actions from especially investors and banks have been leading, have been really influential in this change. So all of the oil companies pretty much to get credit and investment at the moment need to show some kind of a low carbon pathway. And I think that is the main reason why we see these papers now. And for me... Uh, in order for these to really be credible, I would need to see that the oil companies are also advocating for strong climate policies. Because I think what we have seen a lot is that um, companies may present all kinds of low carbon pathways that are not binding and at the same time still lobby and advocate against effective climate policies that would also, for example, in the oil oil issue, Uh, have an impact on the demand side. So that would mean, for example, electrification of transport. So um, I think for me to be really convinced by these oil companies, they would really need to show that they're no longer trying to delay climate action on the level of the society and then align their pathways with like 1.5 degree Paris, Paris agree- Agreement uh, path. And that I think would be truly convincing. Uh, for now, I think my analysis is that uh, they have finally understood that the world is changing and at some pace we are getting rid of fossil fuels. As you say, it's paramount that we move toward greener and cleaner sources of power. At the same time, we see the predictions for the future that more and more energy is needed. So that transition, it really cannot happen overnight. There's millions of people and their livelihoods that are being affected. So this really requires that uh, we work a lot closer together and not against each other to make this massive shift happen. What's your thinking on this? I absolutely agree. I mean, climate change needs all hands on deck and it's not possible to achieve the change that we need to see within any one sector or certainly within just the NGO environmental movement bubble. So I completely agree that we need to work much better together and try to identify the really like difficult bottlenecks and and problems and find new kinds of solutions there and and they're so complex that they really require all kinds of actors to work together and of course the consumers as well since we're talking about really structural change but then when we look at for example individual companies i think what makes the difference between a credible and not so credible scenario or pathway or responsibility program would be that if your goal is um, clearly further away, such as 2030 or 2035, is there a credible pathway with like milestones and a road roadmap and also short-term measures that uh, will take you there? And I think if, if that is there, then um, we're usually talking about... Um, quite a good approach. Absolutely. Definitely those milestones, they are very much needed so that we can see that 
the trajectory is right and, uh, and we're moving to the right direction. So let's figure out how to make this equation work better so that we can bring in real change. That's coming up in just a bit. Don't go away. To find an efficient way for corporate NGO partnership to work, it's important to know what each partner is expecting from the relationship. From my experience, I can say that companies value mutual respect, focus on facts and research, creating a roadmap and aiming for measurable impact, as we discussed a bit earlier. I take that NGOs are looking for pretty much the similar things, or is there anything to add on that? For NGOs, we really need to justify if we put a lot of time into a process like this. And we need to be able to think that it's quite likely that some real change will come out. So I think trust and, and clarity, ground rules, what we're trying to achieve, that is really key. And another thing I would maybe add is that I think for most NGOs, if they enter a process or dialogue with one company, they're probably looking at and hoping for impacts uh, that goes beyond that one company. So then that would mean that uh, they might want to see some ideas or solutions how they could maybe um, champion the whole sector or, you know, once they've um, come to a good solution, try to get others on board or maybe talk about it publicly um, Something like that. Well, let's zoom into this with an example. So consider that a company commits to cut emissions aiming at net zero, but it needs stable profits to fund the shift. Also, it's required to look after the best interest of its customers, shareholders and the personnel. So how can an NGO like Greenpeace start working with such a company, considering that the goal might be many, many years ahead? I don't think there's any fundamental problem to that because it's it's very clear that big changes take time. And then, of course, we need to consider the timelines for most Western companies. For example, Net Zero by 2050 would be quite late and probably not in line with the Paris Agreement. But if we're talking about Paris Agreement aligned goals, then I think it's it's clear that uh, it's no problem <laughs> to us or probably any NGO to understand that. And that is the question that we need to work around with, like how to find the solutions to move fast enough, but still making sure that the needs of the company and its people are met. But then um, what makes the difference is if there's trust from both sides to find the solutions. That is the key thing. Something uh, quite important and challenging, at least from the company perspective, is the total impact and measuring that total impact. So typically an activist group or an NGO is focused on addressing one core environmental or social issue. So that might even lead to a situation where solving something can have a detrimental impact on something else. So a positive social outcome can have a bad environmental outcome or vice versa. So how can one solve this total impact puzzle? Well, I think it all starts from getting the facts on the table and really understanding what all of the impacts are. And then um, I really believe that there are always ways to find solutions. Um, if if we do that, if we come to the table with an open mind um, and NGOs certainly are very committed to the social justice agenda as well and 
probably have already considered many of those kind of inter-environmental um, issues. I mean, that that's why it sometimes takes very, very, very long for our campaigns to be developed because <laughs> there's these internal debates around, okay, if we're doing a plastic campaign, then what does it mean for forests, etc. cetera. Mm. Uh, but still, I mean, every time I talk to a company, I'm at least really hoping to learn something new. And I think whenever we really start a dialogue, hopefully all of us learn something new. And if if we have an approach to be transparent about the possible conflicts and risks, then certainly solutions can be found. And that brings us to why corporates need to think beyond investments and mandatory commitments to build a powerful partnership with an NGO. That's coming up in just a bit, so stay tuned. Enterprises are transforming to become more purpose-oriented, but given that it's a quite recent phenomenon, they have still quite a long way to go. So, Sini, how can purpose and trust change companies and their relationship with stakeholders, and particularly with NGOs for the better? Well, I think it is changing already and has changed a lot. And in my view, that comes from simply the fact that if you, for example, look at climate change and the polls done both in Nordic countries and around the world show a pretty steady like 70% support of people almost across uh, countries for strong climate policy. And that probably means that in any company, (laughs) a clear majority of the staff also want to do the right thing there. Uh, so, So the purpose is there. And then I think when... When these values become um, acknowledged on the corporate level, uh, on the leadership level, it gives people the mandate to show their values at work. And the way I see it from working with with corporations, I think that that is the most important thing. Because quite often we've been in dialogue with, with let's say, uh, people who are responsible for certain issues or divisions or or corporate responsibility at large. And um, the key thing there is whether they have the mandate and the space to really look for common ground with NGOs and and to come up with something that actually changes things. Mm. And quite often it's it's easy to see from the beginning that they don't. And in that case... Um, talks probably will not lead anything meaningful. Um, and when they do, then there's really a chance, I think, for both to find out, learn something new and find better solutions. So that to me is the key. Um, and I think a lot has changed in the corporate world because of the pressure that comes from uh, staff. Mm. And I think that's also one reason why it's been necessary for a lot of companies to become also like statedly more purpose driven, uh, because that's 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 the way to keep the best people at work as well. So for a company that is interested in working together with a NGO like Greenpeace, uh, what do they need to understand from 
you know, the NGO side in order to be more receptive to change and to genuinely work in a more collaborative approach? Well, I think the first step for both sides is to acknowledge that we're all people <laughs> and we don't need to be afraid of each other and hopefully like come to the talks with an open mind and really exploring and, and listening. And, and that really goes for both sides. Uh, that is the first step. And, and probably also to understand that NGOs, key thing really is their mission. Their mission really is the issue that they're working on. So for them, whether it makes sense for them to be involved in a dialogue is going to be measured up against that, mm. against their goals around the issue and if there's going to be real change as a result. Maybe to add one more, which I notice when talking to corporations that quite often the people might even be a bit surprised to hear that, oh, you're like an organization and you have hundreds of people at work and you have similar organizational challenges as any company would do. So maybe there might be thinking that it's, it's all a bit like very dogmatic hippie cult kind of thing and then <laughs> it's good to share a little sometimes that we're actually not that different mm. and once that understanding is there it's so much easier to find common ground also around the issues. The um, recently published trust barometer by Edelman it shows that uh, NGOs and companies they are seen as being more ethical and more competent compared to governments and media And it also suggests that these two parties can really be a stabilizing force in this circle of distrust that uh, we are seeing today. How does this view resonate to you? I think that's a really interesting view. And personally, I'm I'm really scared <laughs> by <laughs> statistics like that. I'm uh, I hope that we would, of course, see stronger democracies and um, trust in politics more than that. So that's, I think, for all of us, <laughs> definitely in established democracies to think, how can we get to a better place? But in the absence of that, um, I I do think a little bit similarly, I think that corporations can be a bit of a stabilizing force in the climate debate. And then when it comes to more kind of the problem of more populistic Social debate, social media, sometimes completely out of hand with polarization. I also think that both companies and NGOs have responsibility there and a real chance as well to kind of make the decision not to go down that line, but more like keep it to the facts and try to stabilize more than shake the boat. Mm. I don't know yet how to do that. But I think that is certainly something really important to think about for the next years to come. So to round this up, what would be your recipe for success if, you know, the corporate NGO relationship has so much potential? So how to really, you know, grow it and make it more than an exchange of resources and competencies with limited common goals into something highly more impactful? Yeah, that's a difficult question and actually takes me a little bit back to what we talked about. Why is it always about confrontation? Because I think quite often when NGOs and corporations truly come up with something new, it is as a result <laughs> of a conflict or confrontation. And I think the reason why that happens is that that so far that's been almost the only time when NGOs and companies are actually negotiating Otherwise, it's, it's just like 
exchange of views that doesn't really go deeper. So I, for me, I think the, the answer is somewhere there. Like, how can we make these dialogues and exchanges go deeper and like really push both parties a little bit to go go out of their comfort zone and go the extra mile to try to find new solutions and um, ways of working that would work for both parties. Because I think when you put together two parties that come with very kind of different kinds of backgrounds and positions, and then you find a common way, then something truly new has been born. But it's, it's really hard to get there if if there isn't some kind of force or reason for them to really push a little bit more. So how can we make this happen without conflict would be my question <laughs> and answer to this as well. Oh, that's a fantastic answer to end this conversation. No doubt we all have our respective roles to play in ensuring that you know, these critical issues reserve the attention they deserve. Sin, it was such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, listeners. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast and share it. I'm Atte Palomäki, and today we went beyond business.